You remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. God didn't put the world that is coming, the world that we are talking about, under the angel's control. Instead, someone declared somewhere, what is humanity that you think about them? Or what is the human being that you care about them? For a while you made them lower than angels. You crowned the human being with glory and honor. You put everything under their control. When he puts everything under their control, he doesn't leave anything out of control. But right now we don't see everything under their control yet. However, we do see the one who was made lower in order than the angels for a little while. It's Jesus. He's the one who is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death. He suffered death so that he could taste death for everyone through God's grace. It was appropriate for God, for whom and through everything exists, to use experiences of suffering to make perfect the pioneer of salvation. This salvation belongs to many sons and daughters whom he's leading to glory. This is because the one who makes people holy and the people who are being made holy all come from one source. That is why Jesus isn't in shame to call them brothers and sisters when he says, I will publicly announce your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the middle of the assembly. He also says, I will rely on him. And also, here I am with the children whom God has given to me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he also shared the same things in the same way. He did this to destroy the one who holds the power over death, the devil, by dying. He set free those who were held in slavery their entire lives by fear of death. Of course, he isn't trying to help angels, but rather he's helping Abraham's descendants. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. This is so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God in order to wipe away the sins of the people. He's able to help those who are being tempted since he himself experienced suffering when he was tempted. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. This morning we're going to be continuing our journey through the Apostles' Creed, 12 Statements of Faith, where we affirm who we are and what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. Missy, you lucked out. Next week is He Descended Into Hell. Do you want that one? Um, I don't know who's doing the children's time that one. It's probably me. Uh, if everyone, if they looked ahead. Um, so the Apostles' Creed, as we've seen and as we've begun or been looking at the past three or four weeks, is a, a recitation of some of the oldest and most widely used summaries of Christianity. It's one of the most commonly used that the church has ever composed or brought together. And so the words of the Apostles' Creed, as we've seen, are a summary of the Bible, where we take everything that the Bible says and Christians have comprised it or, or condensed it into 12 statements, into a handy statement, where we summarize the essential teachings of Scripture. And when you and I share in these words, we make a personal statement as well as a corporate statement of what we believe and of our religious convictions as we say and as we share together, this is what the Bible says, essentially. That means when we recite the creed, we're saying, this is what we believe the Bible says. 
when we read it and when we share in our faith and our life together. And when we share it, what we do is we are marking out or we are declaring the boundaries of what it means for us to have essential truths and what it means for us to have uh, truths that are essential for our salvation. Last Sunday, I shared with you that of the 12 statements of the Apostles' Creed, six of them talk about Jesus. And so of these six statements... The creed basically bookends the life of Jesus. And so if you've read the creed or if you've thought about it as we have recited it together, we read about Jesus' birth, which we talked about last week, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so we read about his birth or we recite a memory of his birth and recollect his birth, but then we skip like 33 years, don't we? Until we go straight to his appearance which is what we read today, where he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and then buried. We might wonder why the creed skips the life and the miracles of Jesus. We might wonder why the creed skips his teachings and the other interactions that he has with his followers, as well as the interactions that he has with those that opposed him. I think what the creed helps us to see, though, is those experiences, those things that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus are important. But when it comes to our salvation, they're not essential, are they? They help us to know about who Jesus was and what Jesus was and and how God chose to interact with you and I and with other humans in the person of Jesus Christ. They help us to see or to think of ways that others in Jesus' time were able to see who he was and recognize what he was. But when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to, to the reason that Jesus died on the cross, all of those things aren't essential. What's essential to being a follower of Jesus Christ is his death and then his resurrection, isn't it? All the other things about Jesus are important, but they're not essential compared to, to, to what he offers us. His miracles, his teachings, they're great, but alone they're not what offer us forgiveness and life eternal, are they? See, the death of Jesus was what offers us forgiveness. The death of Jesus is what offers us forgiveness for for the sins that we are committing and have committed as well as the sins that we're going to commit. The death of Jesus, if you will, is the very heart of the gospel and of the message that you and I receive and we profess and we share in as followers of Jesus Christ. And so in our statement of faith from the Apostles' Creed that we're looking at today, it covers three areas, doesn't it? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, and then dead, or suffered under Pontius Pilate, dead, and then buried. And so I'm going to spend time talking about two of them. We're going to spend a moment talking about Pontius Pilate, and then we're going to spend some more time on the death of Jesus as we ask ourselves the question that every Christian throughout history has had to wrestle with for himself or herself. And that's why did Jesus have to die? Friends, if there's anything for you to think about from the, today's sermon or, or just even the reading of the Apostles' Creed, it's for us to answer this question for ourselves. Why did Jesus have to die? What does that mean to me? What does that mean for the church? What does that mean in my life? 
There's a, a contemporary theologian, well, he was in the 1900s, Karl Barth. Uh, he wrote about why Pontius Pilate is included in the Apostles' Creed. And what he said, the illustration that he gave was, he compared Pontius Pilate to a mangy dog that has wandered into a very nice room. The room is still beautiful, but the dog smells the room up. And so the creed is similar to this illustration that I think is helpful. Because the creed gives us this this grand vision of what it means to be a Christian and of what God has done in our lives in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we read about Pontius Pilate's name and the beauty is interrupted with, with a smell that permeates through the air. The creed's about God. It's about God's action toward us. It's about God's love for us. It's about the way God has, has chosen to, to offer Himself to us. And then we read the name Pontius Pilate, and there's, well, it's a name that, that doesn't associate with God, right? And so we might ask why His name's included. His name's one of two, other than Jesus that's included in the Apostles' Creed. So if you think about it, it's Mary, which you have to have her name, right? And then it's Pilate. Think of all the other people that traveled with Jesus, that were in ministry with Jesus, that, that witnessed Jesus' miracles and everything else that happened. We don't talk about any of their names in the Apostles' Creed. We don't talk about any of the apostles themselves, the men that, and women that, that took the gospel of Jesus Christ after His resurrection and carried it out into the world. But as we're going to see, there's nothing glorious about the inclusion of Pilate's name. But his name is important because what it does is it gives us a solid archaeological and historical record of someone who physically interacted with Jesus. Pilate provides us evidence of Jesus beyond the words of the Gospels. His name is included in in Roman records as the procurator or governor of Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. Pilate's name is also included in the Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus' writings. And so archaeologically, now, I think this is crazy because the, the creed, we have to remember what? It was written in, in 100 A.D. or earlier and, and you know, was formalized in, in the first 150, 200 years of Christianity. And so they obviously didn't know that there would be these archaeological finds that are coming. But there are a couple of pieces of evidence of Pilate. In 1961, a stone was discovered in an excavation at the amphitheater in Caesarea. This stone is engraved on it, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, and it says some other stuff, and so you could fill it in where where they've gone back, um, archaeologists, and filled in what it says. In addition to this stone that was found, uh, there have also been bronze coins that have been found that were struck by Pilate during his time in reign between 29 and 32 A.D. And so as the procurator of Judea, Pilate would have resided in Caesarea, Oh, I didn't switch. It's the next slide. I'm sorry. Um, no, the next one. I'm sorry. I got off. Uh, and so he would resort, lived here. You know, between here and Jerusalem, which one are you going to pick, right? If you could live in sunny, I don't know, say where you want to say, California, Florida on the beach, or the middle of nowhere, which would you pick? Well, for Pilate, his choice was Caesarea. And so he only would have made the trip to Jerusalem on, on, for official business, high holy days, for observance of Passover, for other times that he needed to go to the city to conduct business. 
Historically, he's known for being an especially brutal ruler in Judea, even according to Roman standards. The Romans knew of him as being brutal. A couple of examples, just really quick, in his reign come from the writings of Flavius Josephus. The first is Pilate had his soldiers enter Jerusalem carrying their banners in incense uh, that contained images of the emperor on them. We know that in Jerusalem there are no graven images. There are no images of anything because, you know, the, the scripture says not to have that. And the Romans usually allowed the Jews to, to govern themselves without really trying to antagonize them. And this is the opposite of what Pilate did. So the banners were brought into the city at night. The city of Jerusalem woke to find them hanging on the walls of the Antonia Fortress right outside of the temple. The leaders of the Jewish uh, community immediately went to Caesarea to petition to have them removed. And for five days, Pilate made them wait without seeing them. On the sixth day, he allowed to see them. He had Roman soldiers surrounding the courtyard where he was listening to them. And uh, he told them, stop your protest or I'm going to put all of you to death. They all laid on the ground, bared their necks, and said, we would much rather have that than violate our laws. Pilate yielded because he was unwilling to kill so many. You have to remember, the Romans saw him as an especially brutal person. A second example provides an even more um, appropriate picture of his brutality is when uh, he siphoned off temple funds to, to build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. When news of this became public, crowds gathered to protest the action. Pilate had soldiers enter the crowd in disguise. At a given signal, they pulled out clubs and began to beat the crowd so severely that the riot dispersed, uh, except leaving the soldiers and those that they had wounded or killed. So Pilate's name, why are we including it in the Apostles' Creed? See, it reminds us that Jesus was a real person. It anchors Jesus to another real person that we can read about in history as we ourselves are faced with the question, why did Jesus Christ have to die? See, that's the sole reason that Pilate's included, isn't it? It's for us to have this marker that you can look at through other sources, not just through the scriptures, not just through the gospels, and and people can see and say, well, yeah, there's a connection there. But for us to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die, we cannot answer it or even consider it without talking about the second part of our statement, the creed today, which is to think about the cross. Because see, of everything else that we do, of everything else that we talk about in terms of, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we cannot think about that without knowing that what happened on the cross is the central message of Christianity. In isolation, it's just a symbol, isn't it? In ancient times, the cross would have served as a a visible and, and symbolic reminder of the power of Rome to the people that lived in the Roman Empire. We know that the cross was used for the act of crucifixion and to remind those who lived in the empire of the power of Rome. And so when ancients looked to the cross, they they were reminded of the suffering, of the torture, of the shame, of the punishment, of the death that occurred by those who were being punished by Rome. But see, friends, we take the cross and we make it much more than just a symbol, don't we, when we recite the words of the Apostles' Creed? We make the cross much more than a symbol. We make it much more than a tool of death. To us, the cross becomes an intersection where God's grace and God's holiness come together. 
in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We remember that that God demanded payment for sin as we read in the words of the Old Testament that God demanded atonement for sin. And in the Old Testament, the high priest would would lay his hands on a lamb that was blemish-free. In his laying on of hands, he would symbolically transfer all the sin of Israel onto this animal. The lamb would then be led out out into the wilderness to be left, to be eaten by wild animals. Symbolically, as the lamb left Jerusalem, so did the sins of Israel. But here's the catch. The atonement was temporary. Because it did not offer sins, uh, forgiveness for sins in an indefinite period. It only offered forgiveness for the sins that had been put on the, the animal at that time. But see, friends, at the cross of Jesus is where we remember and where we celebrate that the atonement of God required, that that was required for for all of our sins was paid. And this action is what makes the, the cross more than a symbol, but it makes it a symbol of celebration, doesn't it? That God paid and atoned for our sins by by letting Jesus take my place on the cross, by letting Jesus take your place. And that's the most powerful truth of the Christian faith. That Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for you and as a substitute for me. He took my place. He took your place. He took the pride and he paid the price for, for our rebellion, for our pride, for our sins, for our everything that we commit against God. And that's why the cross becomes not a symbol of shame and of torture. But for us, it's a sign of celebration. That because of the cross of Jesus, you have been offered so much more than you could ever have on your own. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried. Friends, that's what makes the cross more than just a symbol. It's because Jesus willingly took this action. He went willingly. It was his choice. He didn't, you know, he he chose to do it. In the Gospel of John chapter 10, Jesus said to his disciples, This is why the Father loves me. I give up my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I give it up because I want to. I have the right to give it up, and I have the right to take it up again. I received this commandment from my Father. See, Jesus going to the cross was not an accident. In the incarnation, in His coming to walk among us, Jesus knew why He had been sent. Jesus knew why He had come for each of us. He came, and it was His choice. And even with it being His choice, we know it was still hard. We know he cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was betrayed and arrested as he asked God to take this cup away from him that he was about to drink, but he still chose death. He chose the cross and to remain on it. He could have called a a host of heavenly angels to rescue him. He could have taken himself off the cross. He called out to God and said, "Why have you know, I've been forsaken, I've been abandoned. And even as he took on the full burden of sin, he stayed. The man who was sinless, who knew no sin, who experienced temptation, chose to stay on the cross. And in doing so, he experienced pain, ridicule, and suffering as he hung on the wood. 
Matthew 26, 39-44 says, Those who are walking by insulted Jesus, shaking their heads and saying, So you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Where you save yourself? If you were God's son, come down from the cross. In the same way, chief priests, along with legal experts and the elders, were making fun of him, saying, He saved others, can't ha- but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, so let him come down from the cross now. Then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, so let God deliver him now, if he wants to. He said, I'm God's son. The outlaws who were crucified with him insulted him in the same way. See, when we share in this line from the Apostles' Creed, we are proclaiming that Jesus chose to go to the cross and to stay on the cross. We are proclaiming that His atoning death extends over every sin fully and completely, that He tasted and experienced death for you and for me so that we might live, so that we might experience salvation, and so that we might stand before our Maker. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19 says, God was in Christ, and He reconciled the world to Himself. Friends, this is the gift that we receive through the celebration of the cross. A gift that Jesus offers to you and to me and that God offers us out of His love for each of us. A gift that we receive, a gift that we can embrace, and a gift that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can allow God to use us, to change us, and to make us be, li- me, be and live all for His glory. Amen.